Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis. Very first book of the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with how to find it, go right to the front and go 37 chapters in. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. If you are a guest and just kind of coming in, you've joined us in the middle of a series called The Story, where we're basically moving from Genesis to Revelation in about six months. And so that means we've got to go really, really fast. We've got to hit a lot of the high points. But in the process, our hope is to give you a sense of the larger narrative of Scripture so that you, as a, a person who follows Christ, if you follow Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're still curious about what God's Word has to say, we want to expose it to you in the most powerful way. And, and the way we do that is by giving you an understanding of that larger narrative so that you know how to interpret, whether you're reading Habakkuk or Jeremiah or one of Paul's letters, you'll know where that fits in this larger story. And so I'm going to kind of give you a recap of where we've been. We started in the beginning where Genesis starts, and it tells us that God created all things for His glory, that He created men and women in His image and likeness, and put them in the garden to cultivate it, to keep it, to bring Him glory. Men and women sinned against God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey out of a sinful heart, a disposition that said, I don't want a God above me. I want someone. I want to be my own God, uh, effectively. And the result of that is we are separated from God. Our first parents were kicked outside of the garden. And ever since, you and I have had to live life outside that garden. And we begin, every one of us, our lives outside of fellowship with God, cut off from Him. But God, from the very beginning, promised in Genesis chapter 3 to send somebody to fix this. He says, I'm going to send a seed of the woman. And so we've got this painting lit up over here that Terry did so beautifully a few weeks ago. This is what the story is all about. It is the seed that will come from the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. It was the first promise that God ever made to our parents of the gospel. When He said, I'm going to send somebody not just to forgive you for your sins, not just to correct everything you've broken, but to set everything back in its right order. From that point, then, they're outside the garden, and we start to see the effects of life outside the garden, starting with a global flood uh, and, and Noah and, and that story about God finally seeing the ripple effects of sin so corrupt society that God just has to kill everybody in a global flood. But he, he leaves one family, Noah and his family, in order to continue the human race because, again, he's made a promise. I'm going to send somebody to fix this. I'm not just going to wipe you all out. I'm going to restore everything back the way it was. And then last week, we looked at the way that God initiates that promise. So he made that promise in Genesis 3. By the time we get to Genesis 17, he's entering into human history to start initiating and making good on that promise. And he does that through a man named Abraham. And Abraham's son, Isaac. And Isaac's son, Jacob. And when we left off last week, that's where we were. Jacob, having his name changed to Israel, transformed by the grace of God, now with the twelve tribes. And so that brings us to where we are this morning in a really, really interesting story that is going to portray for us a very difficult concept. Some doctrines in the Bible are really hard to understand. Some of them are a real struggle emotionally and otherwise. How many of you have ever read something in Scripture and you actually walked away very troubled by what you read? You can be honest. Yeah. How many of you have ever read Scripture and you walked away and you might have even been a little bit angry at God because of something He said or something that was recorded that He did and it confused you and it left you wondering? Yeah? Why in the world would He do something like that? And, and, and it's difficult sometimes for us to wrap our heads around some things that the Bible teaches. And one of those difficult concepts is a doctrine called 
providence. Now, there's a 19th century Baptist confession that defines providence in this way. It says, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass. And he perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin or to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. That is providence in a nutshell. It tells us that there is a personal God who oversees all things. That God ultimately works out everything He desires. Paul in Ephesians says, He works all things, everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, after the counsel of His own will. That's what the Bible teaches. And sometimes it's hard for us to to get our, our heads wrapped around that, or for that matter, even our hearts, even though it's something explicitly taught in the Bible, and it is a doctrine that resists oversimplifying things. That's one of the other reasons I think we get so uneasy with it sometimes. Providence as a doctrine doesn't resolve easily. We could go to other things and find some easel, more, more easy resolution. Like, for example, determinism. Determinism says there is a force that controls absolutely everything, and even the quote-unquote free choices that you make are predetermined. So when I got up this morning, I had toast with honey on it. Now, I could have had eggs and bacon. And a determinist would have said, no, you couldn't have had eggs and bacon. Choosing the toast was the only choice you could have made. You were destined from the foundation of the world to choose that toast, and there's no way in blazes you would have ever chosen bacon and eggs. And as a guy with a particular affinity for bacon, I would say, I beg to differ. Right? I might actually be able to choose that. But a determinist would say everything is fixed, everything is closed, and you are basically in control of nothing. You, you don't control anything. Now, the Greeks actually had a concept for this. They called it the logos. That was their term to describe this impersonal force that permeated and controlled every aspect of our lives. And then John comes along and writes his gospel, and he says, yep, there is a logos, a word, but that word is not an impersonal force. It is a person, a being, who became flesh and who dwelled among us. Again, confounding this idea that everything is somehow out of our control. Now, you could also go to the other extreme with something called libertarianism. And for all the Gary Johnson fans out there, that's not who I'm talking about. Okay? This is not a political party. This is a philosophical school of thought that in contrast to determinism, which says you don't control anything, libertarianism says you control everything. William Ernest Hensley was a poet in the 19th century. He wrote a poem called Invictus. You may have never heard of his name. You may have never heard that poem. But if you've ever been to a graduation ceremony, you've heard at least two lines from that poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's libertarianism in a nutshell. I control everything. A man makes his own destiny. And here's the thing about the doctrine of providence as it's taught in the Bible. It throws a monkey wrench into the gears of both of these systems. Reveals them both to be oversimplified, adolescent ways of viewing life. And it's why most people find the doctrine of divine providence to be unsettling. Because, again, there's no easy resolution here. But when you think about it, doesn't that really more match your life than these oversimplified explanations? Life doesn't resolve easily either, does it, folks? It doesn't. It, it, it doesn't. Most of the time, in fact, there are a lot of areas of my life that won't be resolved on this side of eternity. And sometimes that drives me crazy. But life is not simple. Life is not adolescent. It's hard. It's complex. It's sometimes very, very 
difficult. And so I can't on the one hand say I'm not in control of anything, or on the other hand say, well, I'm in control of everything, and life then is now full of things like chance and luck and karma or or what have you. I've got to trust in something called divine providence. And when life is hard to understand, that is where God commends us to go to a loving supreme being who has our best interests and His glory at stake and at heart. That's where God commends us to go. And when times are difficult, when we can't explain what's going on, those who call themselves Christians have this biblical teaching that can bring us great comfort and hope. But here's the, here's the catch. It will not bring us that before it stretches and even traumatizes our souls. It can be very, very difficult. Here's the thing about providence. It's very hard to define and articulate unless we can actually see it in life. And the story we're about to look at gives us a very, very clear picture of divine providence. It starts, interestingly enough, with family dysfunction. That should make some of you feel really good. Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So you get enough of the dysfunction just from looking at that. But while that verse is still up there, let me give you a little background as to what caused this. Israel, who was formerly known as Jacob, prior to this account, had worked for a man named Laban. And Laban had two daughters. The oldest was named Leah. The youngest was named Rachel. And during the course of his work with Laban, Jacob fell in love with Rachel. And he struck a deal with Laban that for a certain number of years of labor, he would actually be able to take Laban's daughter Rachel as his wife. But at the end of that period, he marries the woman and then comes to find out that Laban has pulled one over on him and has not given him Rachel, but in fact has given him Leah, who the Bible said had a face like a stone. I'll let you kind of have your own interpretation of that, but apparently she wasn't very much to look at. We don't know, but that would seem to be the indicator, at least from Joseph's perspective. I'm attracted to this one and not to this one, but then I end up married to this one. So he strikes another deal with Laban because he loves Rachel so much, he wants her, and now he ends up with two wives. So this is the the dysfunction and the jacked-up nature of how all of this gets started, is, number one, polygamy, which was never God's intention from the beginning, and number two, out of those two wives, I have a favorite because guys i gotta i gotta tell you just be straight with you you're gonna have a favorite it's just gonna happen and for joseph his favorite is rachel because rachel is the one that he loved to begin with the problem is that leah is the one bearing him all the children at least all of them except for one up until this point in the story and that one is the young man that we're going to read about this man named joseph And so because Joseph is, at this point in the story, the only one born to Rachel, he is now the favored son. Israel's favored son is the only offspring of his favorite wife. That's the context of the family into which Joseph was born. All kinds of dysfunction, all kinds of nonsense going on, all kinds of drama. And and this should be very encouraging to some of you. Because some of you come from families that are kind of like this. 
Like my family's full of crazy people. And you wonder, you know, and, and for some of you, maybe it's really serious. I've been the subject of, of physical, verbal, sexual, psychological abuse. There's been substance abuse. There's been dysfunction. There's been codependency. There's been all these, all this sinful mess that's gone on in my life. And I was raised up in this. And because of that, I'm a jacked up mess myself. How in the world could God use somebody like me? And I'm going to tell you, if you're asking that question, this is a story you need to hear. Because this is the beginnings of this man who's named Joseph. Joseph. And in the beginning, Joseph seems like to be a pretty good guy. Number one, he really does seem to be a godly young man. In this instance, the youngest brother tends to be the most godly. That's something really important for us to understand. In the church, oftentimes, uh, particularly when you're in our congregation turned 30 years of age last October, and when you get to be about that age, you, you tend to have this propensity to cap on the younger people. And so a term like millennials comes up, and your automatic uh, deduction from that is, well, they're just young and stupid, and they really don't know anything and everything else. And then you get these, you know, these small groups full of grumpy old men talking about how the world's going to hell and the church with it because all these young people, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're immoral. They're lazy. They're this. They're that. They're not contributing. They're not doing that. And if that's you, you're the problem. You're, you're the one that needs to repent, not the younger people. Okay? Because it's not age that determines your godliness. We have here the, an example of a young man, probably 14 or 15 years of age, who exhibits, at least in the beginning, more spiritual maturity than his older brothers. And he certainly is not patterning his life after his dad, Jacob, who was a scoundrel, or his granddad, Isaac, who caused dysfunction in his own family, or his great-granddad, Abraham, whose sins we kind of listed out in great detail last week. Joseph is a pretty good guy. Paul said this to Timothy in the New Testament. He said, Let no one look down on you because of your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So there's two sides to that. Number one, Never, ever, ever look down on somebody merely because they're young. Timothy is probably just out of his teens when he becomes a pastor at Ephesus. People in their late teens and their early 20s can do powerful things for the kingdom of God when they don't have grumpy old people holding them back. Okay? That can happen. Do not confuse age with sin. That is not true. Now, if you're young and you're going, yes, Finally, somebody said that. Here's what you need to know. Don't be stupid. Okay? Don't be stupid. Because a lot of young people, they like to, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Put a period at the end of that sentence. There's not a period there. There's a comma. And after that comma comes the following. Set an example in your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity. Okay? And, And if you do all of that, it doesn't matter what age you are. No one should be able to look down on you. This is one of the things that we learn from the early life of Joseph. He's a, he's a godly young man. And it teaches us there is a way to live young and respectfully and not foolishly. Now, here's the other thing you need to know to keep things in balance about Joseph. He's a runt. He's a runt. He's a godly guy, but he doesn't really start out that way. When the story begins, he's mom's favorite who rats out his brothers. And he does that because, thirdly, he is favored. Because, again, he's the son of Rachel. Israel's favorite wife. Bad things happen when mom and dad choose favorites. All right? You, now, does that mean you, you, everybody's got to get the same thing at Christmas? Right? No, that's not what it's about. You, you, you love them differently but equally. And because when the kids start to see favoritism, they know it when they see it. And they'll respond to it 
with their own dysfunction. Why will they do that? Because mom and dad are setting the dysfunctional example for them. And that's what we see in this story. That's what we see in this story. Joseph is doted on. He is spoiled. And exhibit A of this is in chapter 37 when he gets a coat of many colors. Now, scholars have debated for a number of years of what this coat might have consisted of. Here's kind of what I think it looked like. Um, that is, um, that's Snoop Dogg in character as Huggy Bear in the movie Starsky and Hutch. Phenomenal. And um, now, I, I did that not just for comic relief, although it is incredibly funny. Um, I did that to show you when somebody dresses like that, you see the posture? Yeah. I'm favored. I got something nobody else has. I mean, that you, you see there, not just this coat, not just this dress. Man, I wish I could pull something like that off. I'd just look ridiculous. But you, just look at that guy. I mean, he's got it together, and he knows it, right? So there's pride welling up in his soul. There's a disposition there that says, I've got this. That's what favoritism does in a family. Oftentimes when we think about abuse, we think about smacking somebody physically, abusing them sexually, putting them down verbally. This also is a form of abuse. When you act in favoritism toward another child, toward one of your children, you abuse that child because you create in them the very kind of disposition you see in this picture. So don't, don't do that favoritism thing with your kids. This is what's happening, and it causes the very things that we're, we talked about when we, that, that Scripture speaks of when, it, when we looked at that previous verse. His brothers hated him. If you're wondering why, this is it. All the favoritism, all the disposition that comes out of him. Okay, And so it goes without saying, if God's going to use somebody like this, he needs some work first. Don't you think? Can God use somebody like that? Yeah. What needs to happen in that person's life, though, before God can use them? And you've got to remember the principle of the patriarchs that we talked about last week. God uses people powerfully, and it usually only comes after He has wounded them deeply and changed them profoundly. And these are things we have to remember. We have to remember these things. Joseph's journey of change starts with a dream. Take a look at this. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, which is what you'll see Terry painting in a moment if you're not from an agricultural background. A sheaf is a gathering of wheat. And so that's what you're about to see that will come up on the picture here in a moment. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. All right? How would it feel to be a brother and hear that? Especially in a patriarchal period where you're older than him and bigger and stronger than him, and then you hear him bring this dream on you. Okay? Looking in the rearview mirror, sometimes you see more clearly than you do looking ahead. This is one of those times, isn't it? Where you look back on the story and you go, yeah, that probably wasn't the wisest thing to say. Yeah, if you've got older brothers and they already hate your guts and they're bigger and stronger than you and they can take you and you have a big dream where you're king of the world and they're pumping your gas, keep it to yourself. Right? That's, that's what we should learn of this story. You just keep your mouth shut. But Joseph doesn't know how to do that. In fact, he goes on and he talks about another dream where he says, The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed down to me. This one even ticks off his dad. 
So Jacob gets into it now and says, wait a minute, your mother and I aren't going to bow down to you. And this conflict reaches its climax when sometime later, the father sends Joseph out into the field to check on his brothers, make sure everything is well with them. So I'm going to take you, dressed up like Snoop Dogg, there with your big coat, and you're going to go out there, the favorite son, and you're going to conduct a performance review on your brothers and bring that back to me. And the brothers see him coming, and they say, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. My wife is an only child. Her mother was an only child. She didn't know a lot about boys until she married me. And apparently there's no way biologically we can have a child without a Y chromosome. And so she ends up living in a men's dorm, at least until we go to get Gracie uh, out of a Chinese orphanage back in 2010. And there have been several times where she just kind of looks at me with her eyes wide. And she, she's much more in the know now. But earlier in our marriage, she would just go, is this normal? And I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. So some of you are looking at that and you're going, is it really normal? Like blood and knuckles? And it? Yeah, for brothers. Yeah, pretty much. This is the way it goes. But when there's hatred, it gets worse. And, and we start to see this. So let's, just, let's just kill him. Let's just kill him and be done with it. We are tired of this little runt. Now, Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, develops a, a bit brief moment of common sense. And he says to his brothers, let's not shed blood. Let's just rough him up a little bit, throw him into the pit. Let's just do that. And so that's what happens. Joseph comes out, dressed like Snoop Dogg, big coat on, checking for the performance review, and 11 to 1, they jump him. And they beat him to a pulp. They rip off his coat. They throw him down into a pit. And then they sit down to eat. Because it's hungry. You know, beating people up makes you hungry. And then Judah, one of the other brothers looks up and happens to see a band of Ishmaelites, also known as Midianites, coming down the road, and he develops a great idea. And he says to his brothers, let's sell him. Because, you know, he's been so much trouble to us, we ought to at least get something out of this for ourselves. We have paid for his snobbery and the way he's treated us all these years. We have paid for that long enough. And so they sell him into slavery. They take his coat back to their father who will spend the next 20 years thinking his son is dead. That's family dysfunction. Now, while all this is going on, the Midianites then take Joseph down into Egypt, where he is sold as a slave, a household servant, to a man named Potiphar. We don't know a lot about Potiphar, but we do know that he was a high-ranking military officer in the Egyptian army, and so he would have had the wealth and the influence that came with that kind of position. And very, very quickly, Joseph is young, he's spry, he's ambitious, he's hardworking, and he works his way up the ladder in Potiphar's estate. By the time we get to chapter 39, we see that. Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all he had. Joseph, here are the keys, here's the checkbook, here are the passwords words, you have everything. My bank accounts, my property, my employees, the payroll, you've got it all. The only thing I have to worry about now is what I eat. I finally have found a young man who is faithful and hardworking, and I can leave all the stressful work to him. And Joseph is faithful, and he manages it well. But Potiphar's not the only guy who notices this. Potiphar's wife takes notice as well. And in verse 7, sorry for the typo there, after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. 
Now, this is not a hard scenario to reconstruct, is it? Because it's the same kind of foolishness that happens in our day. Potiphar's wife says, lie with me. Lonely housewife, husband's gone a lot, and then constantly in front of her is this young, spry, handsome, strong, faithful young man, the kind of man that her husband just, she doesn't think he could ever be. This is subtle stuff sometimes, right? Starts in our own day with a giggle or a a passing glance or some flirting, exchanging gifts, going out to eat. And and then somebody who's really concerned about you comes and they confront you lovingly with it. And and, and what do you do? What do people normally do when they're living foolishly like that? They become a reverse legalist. They open up their Bible and they go, show me where it's wrong to have dinner. Show me where it's wrong to flirt a little bit. Show me where I've sinned. Show me. Listen, if if, if your heart is maintaining a disposition that rather than asking first, am I honoring the Lord, is asking how far can I go, you've already crossed the line. You don't have to break a written commandment to do that. You can break the heart of your God and trample His commandments under your feet simply by being an idiot. And that's what happens here. That's what happens. Only here, it's a lot more overt, right? She doesn't beat around the bush. She just says, lie with me. Look here, baby. I like you. You're young. You're spry. I find you very attractive. My husband's never here. He doesn't pay me the attention that I want him to pay me. I want you. Let's hook up right here, right now. This is the first account in history of a cougar. So you thought that was a new concept, didn't you? It, this, is, this is it right here. This stuff has been going on for thousands of years. And if you're involved in this kind of nonsense, you are no different than this woman. But you are just as stupid. And one of the things that this teaches us is that women can be just as foul as men. Doesn't, can't they? Now, I know men can be pigs. I, I know that. If you were here in the fall, and when we, when we did the marriage series, you heard me say that. You heard me basically nail all the dudes back against the wall. I mean, I, I know. And I believe, in, I, I believe in male headship in the home. And I believe what that means is men go first, and men have to be men, and men have to lead well. And that means men get the brunt of the responsibility, and men get the punch in the throat when they don't do things the way they're supposed to do them. I believe that. I believe that. And I also believe that women are often victims of the trauma inflicted on them by men. Very seldom have I ever had a woman in my office for a counseling session whose life was ruined, that it was not ruined by a man. Okay? So this happens. But the other side sometimes happens too. Women can be foul. Women can be ugly. Women can be manipulative. Women can be sinful. And we see a great example of this here. It's been interesting to me over the last year, there's been a lot of talk about misogyny in our culture, and I, and I do think there's a lot of it out there. Uh, I've already spoken to the, the absolute disgrace that our current president is in that particular department. He may do some really good things, but I don't care if you're a Republican. When you're a misogynist, you're a misogynist. Okay? So you guys, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say makes you angry. You just forgot that I've said all those kinds of things about Trump and any other man who takes after him. But here's the thing, ladies, that puzzles me a little bit. I find just a tad of hypocrisy, not in all women, and there are certainly victims, and I'm, I'm not saying they're not. But, ladies, here's the thing. Let me, let me just say, if there really are that many women in our culture who hate that kind of behavior, would you please enlighten me as to who exactly it was that bought 80 million copies of Fifty Shades of Grey? 
Well, that's different. No, it's not. It's wicked. It's wicked, idolatry, worship of the human body, nasty, foul, sinful, and 1 Corinthians 6 says you'll go to hell for it. So, this is my point. Now, you can have a woman who is godless and nasty and foul, and she wants what she wants, and that, that's what we see here. That's what we see. Now, with that in view, let me ask the guys a question. For all of you dudes that were sitting out there going, finally, he's talking to the women. Uh-oh. Put yourself now in the position of Joseph. What would you do? What would you do? For some of you, you just need to ask, what do you do? Because for some of you, this is as simple as what happens when you get in front of a keyboard. For some of you, you, you may be flirting around with, with somebody who's attached to another. I, I don't know. I don't know all the stories in, that are in front of me right now, but what would you do? Because it's easy to rationalize sin, isn't it? So easy. Especially when you've been through the stuff Joseph's been through. I mean, he's worked his way up to the top. Now he's got this woman. She looks good. She smells good. She's got him by the arm. The bed is right there. She's made it plain. No hinting. Right? And he's probably thinking to himself, look at all the stuff I've been through. I've been betrayed by my brothers. I've been beat up. I've been thrown into a pit. I've been sold into slavery. I had to work my way up. I finally got into a place that's respectable in life. And this woman's husband, she, he's not much of a husband anyway. I mean, goodness gracious, he probably neglects her all the time. That's why she's looking at me. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly going to be a better mate to her than he would be. And, and, and nobody's ever going to find out, which is the dumbest thing anybody ever thought in their life. They always find out. But, but you're going through those kinds of rationalizations and you're thinking, you know what? I'm just going to do this. It's amazing to me the amount of rationalization that it goes, that, pe- that people will put into justifying rebellion against the clear teaching of Scripture. And so here you are. You're Joseph. What do you do in this moment? I had a pastor colleague once who was telling me a story. He and his wife were planting their very first church, and it was one of those really, really tough moments. They're both working 80, 90-hour weeks. He's not making any money from the church because it's still kind of getting off the ground, and, and he's really working hard, and they're frustrated, and marriage is having some difficulty, and he took a trip to Southeast Asia to speak at a conference, and on the way back, he's connected at this airport, really long layover, about eight hours, and so he ducks into this spa that's in there because he feels like he needs a massage. He's like, I've been in one airplane seat, I'm about to get in another one. Now, there are perfectly legitimate places to have this performed on you. This was not one of them. And, and as he ducks in there, he didn't realize that, but he said this woman, very attractive woman, and as she's performing the massage, she, at some point during that, 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 that event, leans down and whispers in my ear all these other things that she's willing to do for me. And so I got this flood of emotions, he said. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm frustrated. My wife and I haven't been together physically in forever. We're both frustrated with each other. I'm frustrated with the church. I need some relief. There's this beautiful woman who's promising this to me. I, this might, I don't know if this is right. What do I do? And I asked him, what do you do? He said, I closed my eyes and I asked God to help me. And I saw Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. And I jumped off the table and I grabbed my stuff and I ran. And she said, wait, we're not done. And I said, oh, yes, you are. Because sometimes that's what you do. Sometimes there's no rationalization. It's just wicked. And you've got to run from it. And that's what Joseph does here. Look at his response. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It doesn't matter what I'm feeling or what I've been through or how I can rationalize something. God said no. And I will not dishonor Him by the way that I make this choice. All of Joseph's destiny, all of the destiny of the nation of Israel that comes after him, every bit of it's encapsulated in this one decision. So for some of you thinking, well, it's just sex. Or it's just this, or it's just that, or nobody will ever know, or it's just about me. It doesn't really involve anybody else. This kind of stuff has a ripple effect. You have no clue the kind of carnage that you will leave in your wake. Every single time you make a choice to dishonor God. Joseph does the right thing. And here's the thing, guys. The choice he has to make is not easy, not only because he's got this beautiful woman who wants to sleep with him, but because of the stark contrast of choices. He can choose sin and pleasure. The other option is righteousness and suffering. You get that? Because when he says no, she screams rape. And Joseph ends up in an Egyptian prison where he will spend probably the next decade of his life. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to do? Rationalize to get what you want? Or simply say, when it is time to say it, this is wicked. And run from it. Run from it. The next several chapters of this story describe his time in the prison. More hope followed by more betrayal. Until finally Pharaoh himself gets word that this Joseph figure who's in one of his prisons has the ability to interpret dreams. And the dreams Pharaoh is having, combined with Joseph's interpretation of those dreams, leads both of them together to save all of Egypt from a coming famine. Right? So Joseph has the ability to interpret this dream and to say to Pharaoh, Look, I know it's a bull market right now, but a bear is a coming. We are looking at quadruple digit drops in the Dow. We gotta get ready for this. This is where we invest. This is what we grow. This is where we put it because we've only got so much time. And they do it. And the whole nation of Egypt is safe. And the result of that now is this guy who's been sold into slavery, then he works his way up, then he gets lied about by a, a, a woman, and then he gets thrown into prison again. And now, where does he find himself? Jo- Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. The only person more powerful than Joseph is Pharaoh, which at this point makes Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. That's where he goes. That's where he goes. And so Joseph has reached what what many men would consider to be the zenith of his career and his life. Side by side, ruling over the most powerful nation in the world, and that kingdom is prepared for the famine, but but not everybody is. Not everybody is, and that includes his brothers back in Israel. In chapter 42, we read this. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. And so the brothers now come to Egypt, and we see the fulfillment. Remember chapter 37? My sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down 
to my sheep. So this is this really pretty picture that young 14, 15, 16-year-old Joseph gets at the beginning of his life. Do you think he had any clue how that would come about? Do you think if God told you, all right, 10 years from now, it's 2027, here's what your life is like, and everything he describes for you is beautiful and wonderful, and you're like, yeah, I'm headed there. But what if he said, all right, now I'm going to walk back for you starting in 2017, and I'm going to reveal to you the excruciating path that you are going to take to get from A to B. Would you still want the dream? Would you still want it? Because it's fulfilled now. Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. It's hard to imagine the flood of emotions that would be going through this guy's mind at this point. These are the men who beat him senseless, threw him into a well, sold him into slavery. They have taken everything from him, including a younger brother who's now in his 30s that Joseph hasn't seen since he was an infant. A father who for the last three decades has thought that his son was dead. They have essentially taken his life without killing him. And all of the trauma, not just the good stuff, but the bad stuff, all of that comes about, it finds its source in these brothers who have treated him this way, and now here they are, fulfilling the dream that God gave him and bowing before their younger brother. You think he ever imagined the indescribably painful way that this dream would work its way to fruition? You think he would have wanted it to become real if God had said to him, not, not just given him this dream of the sheep, but said, oh yeah, by the way, this is how it's all going to unfold for you. These are all the knotted, tangled messes that you're going to have to go through in order for me to get you from A to B. And as we move through this story, Joseph's emotions from this fulfillment move him to all kinds of, almost irrational kinds of behaviors. He has to remove himself twice so that he can weep deeply over the betrayal and the guilt and the trauma and everything else that has been inflicted by him, on him, ultimately by the hand of his older brothers. He begins to manipulate the situation. He holds one of his brothers, Simeon, prisoner while he sends the rest of them back to Egypt for Benjamin. Bring Benjamin back. And that finally is the point where this conflict sort of reaches its zenith. And Judah finally speaks up and says, Please, please don't take Benjamin. Because they bring Benjamin back, and there's some evidence falsely planted to make it look like there's been a theft so that Joseph can grab Benjamin and hang on to him. And this is when Joseph's, Judah says to Joseph, please, please don't keep our brother Benjamin. He's the only other son of Rachel. There was another one. But he's dead now. Our father Jacob has already lost Joseph. If he loses another one, it's going to kill him. And out of respect and love and devotion for his father, Joseph finally decides to reveal himself to his brothers. He forgives them. He embraces them. And the basis for that forgiveness is divine providence. Not determinism. Y'all didn't have any control over this. Don't worry about it. You couldn't help it. Probably got ADHD or something. And it, you know. Not libertarianism. This is all your fault. 
I'm never forgiving you. Providence. Providence is the basis for forgiving. How else could you forgive people who do something like this to you? Chapter 50. As for you, you meant evil against me. Yeah, I'm not a determinist. You are responsible for your choices. You did do wrong things to me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Why did He do it? Because He promised our first parents, I'm going to send somebody to fix the mess. And then He promised Abraham, I'm going to raise up a nation of people and that nation's going to produce the Messiah, the very seed that I'm promising that's going to come and fix it. And the nation is in trouble. The nation is in the middle of the famine. And so God uses all of these situations and circumstances to save those people from starvation so that He can keep His promise. And at the heart of that is something very hard. At the heart of that, we confess that God meant for Joseph to be sold into slavery. That God meant for Joseph to be betrayed by Potiphar's wife. God meant for Joseph to be thrown into an Egyptian prison. God meant for Joseph to go through this crucible of emotions when his brothers finally come and the dream is finally fulfilled. God intended that to happen. But he did it for good. Because he's not an impersonal force that acts independent of us. He is a loving father who does all things for his own glory and for our good. Got to remember that. Remember that big picture. I've got a prom- I'm, I'm promising that I'm going to send somebody to save you. So yeah, to the brothers, you meant it for evil. But I forgive you because God was using it for good. This is what the story teaches us about God's kind providence. Number one. Yeah, the first thing it teaches us is grace involves transformation. We talk about grace today in such cheap ways, like pennies we just throw in the street. Oftentimes we get somebody and they're not living in a way that, that, that would please the Lord, and you go to confront them and somebody will say, well, just show them some grace. Just show them some grace has become a synonym for just ignore their sin. That's not what grace is. Grace is not cheap. Grace is transformative. Grace gets to the heart of the matter. Many, many years ago, I was interim pastor at another church, and a man came into the office, and after stumbling around for several minutes, finally burst into tears and confessed to me that he had cheated on his wife with one of his co-workers. And so we cried together, we prayed together, and about an hour later, after we're working through his own emotions, I looked at him and I said, All right, you and me got some stuff to do now. Because you've got to tell your wife. And here's what we're going to do. We'll set everything up. We'll bring professional counselors in. She needs to bring people for support. You need to bring people for support. You need to tell her what you've done. Then you need to shut up because she's going to have some things that she's going to say. It's probably not going to be very pleasant. You deserve it. But it's got to happen for this whole thing to come down. And because you've broken your marriage covenant through adultery, she is going to have a decision to make, and she has a right to make that decision as to whether or not she's going to remain in the covenant and try to repair with you what has been broken. And what you need to know is if she decides to leave you, we are here for you both, and we will love you through it. If she decides to stay with you, we are here for you both, and we will love you through it. But I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to pray. Call me in the morning, and I'll have made all the appropriate phone calls, and we'll get a date on the calendar. And he said, okay. And he did call me the next morning. And when he did, he said, Pastor, I've been thinking about this, and I, just, I don't think this is such a good idea. 
I said, all right, what's the problem? He said, well, my wife, I'm not sure she's emotionally ready to hear this. And I said, well, I agree with you, but that's kind of your problem. And he goes, well, yeah, I know, but I just, I feel like we need to hang on for a little while. And, and as, you know, as the head of my home, I don't think she's ready. And so, just in case you guys want to know how I handle stuff like this, I said, well, first of all, no male who is too big of a coward to confess something like this to his wife is qualified to be the head of anything. And he said, well, I didn't say I didn't want to do it. I just don't want to do it now. I said, there's no time like the present. And he said, well, I, just, I was hoping that you and I could meet more often and I could get some counseling from you before I do this. And I said, no, you can't. I've met with you once. We had an expectation of what you were going to do, and you haven't done it. And until you do, you and I have nothing else to discuss. And then he said this. But you're supposed to be my pastor. And I said, yep, this is me being your pastor. Because grace isn't cheap. Grace doesn't ignore crap. Grace, for the sake of people possibly going to hell, most assuredly jacking up their lives and the lives of people around them, looks with love at another person and says, this is wicked. You need to repent. This is going to take you to a very bad place. It feels good now, but it will not be long. Particularly when we compare long with eternity. Before you're going to be in a world of hurt and a bunch of people you love are going to be in a world of hurt. Because you're being stupid and sinful. Grace doesn't leave sin alone. It transforms it. Grace doesn't just leave a young bratty punk a young bratty punk. It takes him through a crucible of experiences and makes out of him a man that will save the world. That's what grace does. It's a transformative thing. It transforms 11 hot-headed redneck brothers into the kind of men that we can now proudly look back on as the heads of the 12 tribes. It takes this young punk and turns him into everything he's supposed to be. When Paul, in Romans 8.28, that verse that's on a coffee cup that looks so beautiful out of context, God works all things together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Folks, this is precisely the sort of thing that Paul has in mind when he writes that. Grace is transformative. It involves, if it's genuine, it involves transformation. I beg you this morning to examine your own heart and life. If you're living in a way that is contrary to the will of God, and you're not going through a crucible inside and out because of it, you better check yourself to see if you really belong to Jesus. Because as an African-American preacher friend of mine said a long, long time ago, God don't whip you if you ain't his youngin'. But if you belong to Him, expect a whipping when you step out of line. Grace, the grace and the love and the kind providence of God, if you belong to Him, it involves transformative miracles that take you from where you are and make you what you're supposed to be. Here's the second thing. It's not about you. We have become so consumeristic in our culture. And in the church, we've bought into this. Sermons about you being victorious and you being rich and you being happy and you being fulfilled. This is not about you because this story, it's not about Joseph. It's not merely for Joseph's sake. God does all of this for the sake of His promise to Joseph's great-grandfather. 
He does all of this for the sake of our first parents to whom He made the promise. I'm going to send somebody to fix this. Way too many times when we encounter hardship, all we can see is what is happening to us. Just like in this story, God's doing something bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And that brings me to the final thing. Look at the big picture. As best you can. God won't always reveal all of it to you. And that's when you have to trust Him. But as best as you're able, look at the big picture. There was a wise old pastor who had a gift that I I frankly wish I had more of. And it was the ability to minister in phenomenal ways to people in crisis. Sudden death, chronic illness, those kind of things. He just had this innate ability to actually be able to do that in a way that made me envious. And, and he had this bookmark that he would use when he was talking to people. And it was one of those, if you've ever seen them, some of you may even make things like this, uh, like a cloth bookmark with holes in it. And then there was all these different color ribbon. And they would tie together. And on the front would be this beautiful tapestry. Well, on the back, it's just a knotted mess. Right? And so, so he would pull that bookmark out on the knotted mess side and he would show it to people. And let them feel it. And, and most people, when they're going through crises, said, go, yeah, that's kind of what my life is like right now. It's a great big knotted up mess. And that's when he would turn it over to reveal that that big knotted mess on the back had created on the front this beautiful tapestry that just spelled out, God is love. And it was his way of, of detailing for them and reminding them that when you don't understand the knots and the tangles of your life, you need to remember there's a God who's weaving a tapestry that you can't see. Joseph, when he's in the pit, when he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife, he doesn't see what's happening. All he sees is what's going on with him. He doesn't see the big picture. He doesn't see it. And our lives are like that. They involve, they involve events and people and relationships and suffering and things that make our life look sometimes like a bunch of tangled up knots almost like it's meaningless and it's cruel, and they appear that way because we can't see the pattern. Look at this story. Compare it with your story. Compare both with the story. Because even when things look dark, His love and His kind providence is everywhere. The crucible of these events results in the sparing of a nation that will grow, that will escape Egypt, that will conquer, that will settle in a land, and will produce an ultimate Israelite who will be a blessing to all who repent of their sins and put their faith and their trust in Him. All of this is overseen by God's kind providence, and we never see it more clearly than when we look at the centerpiece of this story. A bloody cross and an empty tomb. Let's pray. Lord, you're good to us. Thank you that your word isn't full of fluff and pith and things that would really never minister to our souls in times of great heartache. Thank you that your word is real. That it consists of people who are real, stories that are real, scenarios that are real, and, and, and is able to, to pierce the hearts of men and women and change them in profound ways. And so this morning, I pray that the story continues. I pray that your grace penetrates hearts and lives. I pray that your grace will turn people from their sin. I pray that your grace would sustain people who are in their suffering and that you would receive great glory for everything. May your word not return void this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.